All right, Disability Law Show, you bet. We are back. John Scholes, Tamar Agopian from San Firu Tamar and LLP, reaching out to Tamar. Simple, anytime, on your own time, toll free, obviously, 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca, and there's a website that's uh, fairly new. You can learn a lot on it as well, and Tamar's going to give you some details. It's anonymous, of course, called pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. All right, Tamar, we got so many emails and questions to come through. Uh, over the next uh, little bit here, so let's get uh, let's get warmed up. Your week that was, what do you got going on, my friend? This week, I wanted to feature uh, a couple of really helpful tools that we have, uh, and really, it's the focus of getting as much information out to people as we possibly can. John, you know, insurers just send a lot of stuff to people or deal with individuals who are on disability in a way where. They hold all the cards and we want to sort of level the playing field as much as we can. And one of the ways that we do that is putting knowledge out there into the world. And we've got this really helpful website called ldfaq.ca. And as you would imagine, it has a number of memos on it that talk about frequently asked questions, things that we deal with a lot, questions that we receive a lot in case people just want to see as a starting point, you know, what what do they need to know? Like one of them that comes to mind is common terms, like words that insurance companies use in their policies and in their letters to claimants. Uh, and we've got basically, it's like a dictionary, couple pages of all the common terms. But we've launched one this week that I'm really excited about. And it's, it's we're calling it the ultimate guide to CPP disability. Um, but really, you know, it's it's just a really simple way to explain to people what is CPP disability, what can you expect, you know, if you apply for the process, how to even apply the pro- for the process of it, of getting it, because it's a it's a benefit that some insurers really insist that claimants apply for and try and get this benefit. It's one that's provided for by the government. We talk about it on our shows quite regularly. Uh, because the test is, you know, if you have a severe and prolonged disability, then you may qualify for this government-sponsored um, disability benefit. Uh, but the uh, bottom line is that the insurance companies then get a credit for that benefit that you're getting from the government. But I think generally the good outweighs the bad in these kinds of situations where, you know, at least you've got some endorsement from the government that you're likely not returning back to work anytime soon. And I like that as really helpful leverage against the insurance company to say, okay, well, surely then... They must meet your test of disability under your policy, whether it's the own occupation test or any occupation test. Either way, um, it's helpful to have this government support and, of course, some you know financial support as well in case the insurance company cuts you off. And so really great tool, ltdfaq.ca, and it's more comprehensive than anything else we've provided out there either on our shows or um, you know in our on our website on CPP disability. So if you're thinking about applying or you're not really sure, you want to think about what you know it's what's required to do it and the tests and so on, all of that is contained in this really helpful guide. The other uh, tool that we've launched uh, recently that I also really really love is the pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca, John. You know, and, and as you know, this is an add-on to uh, our employment uh, tool that we have that's similar. And what this is meant to really do is to, again, allow people to have a starting point to answering, having their questions answered. It's totally anonymous, super efficient. You can find out what your rights are, no legal speak, and it's drop-down main, menu-based, so super easy to use pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca and 
it will actually tell you, you know, do you want to actually speak with a lawyer? Yes or no. And if it's no, then great, that's fine. You close out your browser. Uh, nobody's none the wiser. But at the very least, you can then start to get a sense of, look, what might, what would my rights be if I were denied in this situation or if the insurance company said this or that? And I, I really think that it's a good way to get some unbiased information about your disability claim. Because this is the thing, John, is that insurers really only want you to know what they want you to know, right? Um, you know, they will send you information or letters or ask you to do things that sound like you have to do them. And as a disability claimant, certainly I'd want to know, is the insurance company right in saying that, that I am required to do these things? And so when you've got these kinds of letters coming to you, hey, you must apply for CPP disability. This is required by your policy. Well, actually, most policies don't require you necessarily to apply, but you want to know that, right? And you want to understand, okay, well, if my policy just says that I'm not required to apply for CPP disability, what do I do next? Is this a good idea not a good idea? Very similar approaches with uh, both tools and just, you know, a really great way, to, like I said, to just get some information out there for people so that they are not lost in this quagmire of disability, uh, you know, claims, right? And what insurance companies are sort of doing, which is trying to be in the driver's seat with all of these claims and navigating them in the way that they want to so that they can get it from beginning to end or not even get it going at all by denying claims right out of the gates. Again, pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. Uh, nice. Check that out. It's free and anonymous, so go uh, feel free to do that anytime or simply make the phone call. You can leapfrog all that and get a hold of uh, Tamar's team as well. one 821 5900. Okay, working down our uh, list of emails here. Frank is up first. This guy's been working, uh, I've been off work rather for over two years and fighting with the insurance company to get my short-term disability benefits approved. I've gone through several appeals and keep getting denied because they say I'm not sick enough that I can't work. I asked about long-term benefits, and the insurance company just said because my short-term wasn't approved, I'm not entitled to long-term. In another letter, they said I applied for benefits too late. I'm super confused on what to do and would appreciate your help to understand my rights. Brutal. 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 Yeah, absolutely brutal, John. And it's brutal because the test is the same. The test for getting approved for short-term right. disability <laughs> and typically the first phase of long-term is absolutely the same. So why is Frank getting all this runaround and resistance? And look, I, I have my theories always, and I, I always tell people, I share people, you know, with people my theories about why this, this can happen. Because most people just assume, look, I'm just going to transition from short term to long term if my doctor's saying I can't work. And theoretically, Frank, that is exactly what should be happening. But it doesn't because sometimes insurance companies have set it up so that they are the administrators of the short term plan for your employer. And so if they act as the administrator, it means they're not actually paying you the benefit if you are approved or denied for that short-term benefit. And then when it transitions to long-term, it's the insurance company's money. So if it's their money, then they are putting themselves in a position where they are the gatekeepers of their own money. So they are going to try and resist the transition from short-term to long-term if it means that they're going to have to pay that LTD benefit. So the idea that insurance companies tell people, John, that they are not eligible because, you know, they haven't gotten the full short-term period or their short-term period wasn't approved is not actually correct. 
you would absolutely have a right to both short term and long term. And I think what what's the worst part of all of this is that he's being told potentially that in fact his long term claim was late. So they've now dangled the carrot of appeal after appeal of the short term claim, running down the time for him to assert a long term application, and then throwing that back in his face to say, well, you know what, now you're out of the whatever window, 90 day window or whatever it was for you to actually, you know, submit your long term claim. None of this is correct, Frank. So uh, let me take it back a step and just explain what the policy likely says. I haven't seen it, but I assume that it has some section that says, look, you know, within, you know, six months or nine, 90 days, 33 months or whatever it is, you need to make an, uh, an application for long-term disability. These pl- policies do have very specific timeframes in which those applications have to be made. However, if it's the, the same insurer, Surely they knew about your disability claim. So if they knew about it, then that notice requirement under the policy, you would think, is not going to be withheld by a court. Okay? So the court's going to look at this and say, wait, hang on, insurance company. But you knew that he was on making a short-term claim. Surely you should have expected that once you're ticked over uh, into the long-term period that, you know, that's going to be something that he's going to pursue. So I don't think... The, the delay or the late notice of his claim is going to hold up, especially if it's the same insurer involved. And then it gets even more problematic for the insurance company when you're talking about these appeals. So now they are basically lulling Frank into, well, provide us more information, provide us more information. You know, we're going to offer you an appeal after appeal. We're going to pretend like we're giving you a fair shake. But in reality, we're just trying to run down that clock so that you never actually make a a valid LTD claim. And so the long and short of this is, John, these are claims that we'd be more than happy to take on to challenge the disability insurer because it's not going to hold up. And if Frank's health issues have persisted as long as they have, then I'd like to take the fight to the insurance company. He said he's been fighting with them uh, now for a couple of years. I think what I'm worried about is have we run down the time to actually start that legal claim? Because there are a couple of time frames that are important. I talked already about the ones that are in the policy, but there's also one that's overarching with all legal civil claims in all the provinces that we work in across the country. And that's two years from the moment that you realized you would have had a legal claim. Usually that's when you get that first denial letter. So you don't want to actually delay. This is why the appeal process is so awful, is that people don't necessarily realize that they are running down that time frame in order to actually sue and start that process with the insurance company so that they are required to respond. The appeal process doesn't have those kinds of time frames in it. In fact, it's probably not even in your disability policy. And this is just something that insurers have put in as a framework to actually keep you in their process and do exactly, unfortunately, what they've done with Frank, which is to resist his disability claims, both for short-term and long-term. So I'm glad for the email, Frank, but I think that the next step would be very quickly to try and assess where you're at in terms of that overall two-year limitation period and use the law to our advantages in situations like this to say the insurance company, the late application isn't going to stand, you should have, you know, you had a duty to let him know about the long term and to adjudicate it fairly uh, and to really give this a fair consideration given that he's been off work for this long period of time and frankly should have been getting his disability benefits this whole time.
kind of alluded to, make that phone call shortly, 1-855-821-5900. And for you as well, feel free to drop us an email here, or you can go to another website called MyDisabilityQuestions.com, an anonymous way to ask some questions. That's the website we're going to go to for our next question here on the show after we take a short break and come right back. Stick with us. This is the Disability Law Show. Hang on. All right. Thank you so much for hanging in through the break, Disability Law Show. We are back at it. John Scholes, of course, tomorrow Gopian doing all the heavy lifting, and uh, she's the one with the knowledge who's always willing to talk to you when we're not doing the show of course one 821 5900 email help at disabilityrights.ca and don't forget about pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca it's new lots of information and questions uh, to be answered on that particular website it's free and anonymous as they all are as well okay mydisabilityquestions.com tomorrow that's the website i'm flipping over to questions are piling in here as well uh says guys i was injured on public transit in 2018 i filed a lawsuit I later went on LTD in January 2020 and CPP disability in December of 2022. I'm in the midst of an upcoming trial for the injuries that I sustained uh, back in 2018. I'm inquiring how my personal injury lawsuit will impact my LTD, CPP, or for that matter, any settlement about uh, any settlement amounts. Thank you. What do you think? This is an interesting question, John. I because you know it's it's interesting. People have lawyers, right? They have a lawyer for per, their personal injury claim. And yet they reach out to us to ask questions about their disability matters. And I think to myself, why is your lawyer not answering these questions for you? But but it makes for good uh, information on our radio shows because it is a really good question, really good one about how do they interact? How does the personal injury settlement or claims or damages that you might get from a personal injury claim impact disability, if at all, and CPP disability? So. With CPP disability, you know, I know a little less about that, I would say, other than the other three. I'll tell you why. Because the government really only puts out um, a fairly limited amount of information on what ends up happening if you come into sort of income. And part of the profile of this uh, individual, I suspect, is that he's been injured and not able to work, obviously, Mm -hmm. since he's been on long-term disability. And so in his personal injury legal claim, he's most certainly, or she is most certainly, going to be seeking not only damages for pain and suffering, but also compensation for the lost income. And I'm gonna get to how that works with LTD, but just to deal with CPP disability alone. What CPP disability says is that you can have a threshold amount of earnings that you receive by way of quote unquote income. And if you exceed that amount, and usually that's about $6,600 at this point, then it may compromise your entitlement to ongoing CPP disability. But it's a may. It's not necessarily a for sure. And it puts the onus on the individual getting CPP disability to tell the government about it. And I think what's interesting about personal injury settlements and a trial decision perhaps even is that you're going to get a judgment. So it's not an out-of-court settlement. There'll likely be a judge making a ruling. Maybe there's even a jury making a decision about this person's injuries, um, negligence, and what those damages are that are flowing from that. And so if it's out in the world and you're going to get a decision out there, you want to think about making sure that you're being transparent with these other government supports and other benefits right. that you're receiving so that everyone's in the loop. Okay, but CPP disability in particular may actually not be impacted at all if this individual doesn't actually get an income reward. And even then, John, I would say it's not income 
from earnings from actual employment, but it's income received as the damages flowing from negligence. So lots of technical things, but the conclusion being that I think CPP is okay. LTD, however, there's been lots of interesting law about how it interacts with personal injury claims and the kinds of compensation that you get from personal injury. So as I was saying, the component of this is pain and suffering, you get damages, loss of income, you get some compensation for that. And LTD disability, at the end of the day, is an income support. That's what it comes down to, is that it's meant to supplement some form of income for individuals, usually about two-thirds of what you were making before you became unwell and not being able to work. And that's supposed to continue for however long you're not capable of actually returning back to work. And look, I mean, if this individual has been approved for CPP disability, I got to think that he or she is going to be on for a while um, because the test for that, as I said at the top of the show, is if you've got a severe and prolonged disability. So I'm going to assume that the injuries that he or she has sustained are quite significant. And so I therefore expect that he or she has not only received or seeking some kind of compensation from the public transit, I suppose, for negligence, but he or she likely also has received the benefits that you get if you're involved in a motor vehicle accident or a motor vehicle claim. And in Ontario in particular, Alberta, Alberta and BC also have similar regimes, but in Ontario in particular, these are called accident benefits. So there's categories of benefits that you can access from your own auto insurer when you're involved in these kinds of personal injury claims arising from a vehicle accident. And that also has interactions with long-term disability. I know it's complicated, John, but these are various sources of income that are important for people to know about so that they know that they seek them and get full compensation from all of these areas if they're involved in a motor vehicle claim. And at our firm, we actually do personal injury litigation as well. We don't talk about it as much on the shows, I think, than as we should. But we've got a ton of experience, James, Michael, Albert, uh, Savan, in this kind of work. And you want to make sure that you're actually hiring the lawyer who understands all of it and then some, right? And so the fact that this person's coming to us, I'm just scratching my head about what you know their lawyer actually knows about disability. But the interactions are super important. Why? Because the long-term disability policy will have a section that says, you know, this is what we'll pay, two-thirds of what you're making. But if you get these other sources of income or other sources of money or compensation as a result of your disability, we as the disability insurer will get a credit, credit from that. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. But that credit is only allowed if it's allowed by law. And in Ontario, the first payer of disability for income support is actually the long-term disability insurer. And so when you get accident benefits, they actually take credit for the LTD. If you get loss of income damages, they actually get credit for LTD, at least the way the law stands now, John, because it is changing a little bit as the years have gone on. And so LTD likes to say, no, we're going to get credit for CPP and we're going to get credit for your, you know, income, loss of income amounts from, you know, accident benefits or whatever compensation you get from your personal injury claim. But the reality is, is that they stand in the first position to pay. And so you want to make sure that LTD recognizes that they are in the first position to pay. And then you really want to see what else your policy says, because there's one insurer uh, that's near and dear to my heart that I won't mention. Um, who has a section in their policies at times that say that if your injuries for disability were caused by negligence by someone else, 
So, for example, like this email tells us, if it was caused by the public transport um, or transit situation that this individual was in, or perhaps another driver, I, I really don't know the facts, but if it's caused by a third party, some insurers will say that we get the compensation back, like a, a claim over back to us for whatever we paid you as disability benefits. So it could be that if this individual sees his claim all or her claim all the way through to trial and wins a trial, gets the judgment, gets all of these buckets of compensation that I've mentioned, that there could be a consequence to ongoing entitlement to long-term disability. So the words then become really, really important, both in the disability policy and also the types of compensation that someone will receive from their personal injury claim. Because John the insurer arguably doesn't necessarily get a credit for what's not income-based, right? It doesn't make sense to me that someone would have a pain and suffering type claim and then that would necessarily, you know, give them a, an award of damages and then that should flow back to the long-term disability insurer. Those two don't make sense to me, at least not from a motor vehicle accident situation. And so it's super, super important to get an overall umbrella type piece of advice so that you know as you go into this and you're making choices around, you know, is there a settlement offer on the table? It does it make sense to go to trial? What's a trial judge going to do with my situation? All of that, that then you don't necessarily bank on the fact that LTD is going to continue or that it's going to be automatic or routine and that the insurer isn't going to do what they often do, which is, hey, we see that there's these other sources of income. We're going to take credit for that and may even pause your payments for a while until we get compensated for the amounts that we, that we think mm -hmm. that we should get credit for, for LTD. So not an easy topic, but a really interesting one and an important one uh, that I like to talk about, of course, so that there's at least a flavor out there, a sense out there of what people need to do if they are involved in a personal injury matter. You know, we're more than happy to represent them in situations like that as well and then champion those rights so that you are maximizing the compensation. That's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. So that A, money is not being left on, uh, you know, on the table, and B, that aggressive insurers or other parties are not taking credits for things that they're not supposed to. Well, you know, that CPP part of this whole discussion is interesting because, you know, getting getting approved for and getting on CPP is good. And we've mentioned in past shows all the different ways that it's a good thing to apply for and hopefully get. But is it the same or is it different where LTD, once you're applied for, uh, approved for LTD by your insurer, you're on it, you know you know they're going to come calling. You know, they're going to come knocking on your door eventually saying, you know, we got to get you off this. You know, you got to appeal for more. There's going to be a cutoff. Does CPP do the same thing or once you're on it, they kind of as a government agency, sort of stay quiet a little bit? And like, are you pretty yeah. safe not to have to get the knock in your door every two years? Or, or what do you that, think? That's right. Yeah, th that's right, John, is that I hear from, you know, our client base that that's actually what it's like, that once you've been approved, you don't have the same rigors of having to deal yeah, with right. an adjuster who's going to call you or email you or contact you, you know, every month, every two months, you know, uh, asking, where are you at from a health perspective? Oh, it's more of the same. Yeah, you sure? You sure? Yeah, yeah, it's more the same adjuster. So you're going to pay me my LTD? Um, and CPP disability is, my sense is it's not like that. And, and that's a good thing because you are right that if LTD has an opportunity to cut you off, they are going to do that, um, especially as we talk about on the show, if there are changes in health or changes in the definition and the policy to qualify. That's usually where we see the cutoffs coming. And I find that those clients that I have who have already received CPP disability, at the very least, can rely on the CPP disability mm -hmm. to remain in place 
while we're trying to challenge the LTD insurer for more compensation. So with CPP disability, unless you actually end up, you know, feeling better and getting back to work and your life completely changes from the status that you were, then theoretically CPP disability should continue. Um, the other thing that's interesting about all of this is that, you know, CPP disability, John, is, you know, under the umbrella of Service Canada. And so, you know, the, the idea that you need to report income or there's some tracking of income like that happens sort of under the same umbrella, the same agency. And so if your LTD benefits are being received and they're not taxable, in fact, Service Canada wouldn't necessarily have any awareness. So I, I think you have to disclose that to CPP disability that you're receiving LTD benefits. And similarly, you may need to disclose that if you stop receiving the, the LTD benefit, it shouldn't impact the CPP disability. But this is why the interaction of all of these benefits, it can get a little bit dizzying and why we try and put out as much information as we can about how, how all of this works on all of our shows. And with that, we'll take a short game, uh, short break, get back into some more email. We got uh, Corey standing by uh, in just a bit. Corey, thank you so much. Hang in. We're going to get to your email. Thank you for sending it, by the way. And for you as well, anytime, help at disabilityrights.ca. Not just for the show. You want to email tomorrow and your team uh, with some questions, you can do that. Or call one 855 821-5900. Short break. We're coming right back with more of the Disability Law Show. Stand by. You bet. We're back with the Disability Law Show. Reaching out to Tamar and her team anytime. We always encourage you to do so. If it's just a chat, just uh, charge you just to pick up a phone, right, and talk. one 821 5900 the website mydisabilityquestions.com is an option as is ltdfaq.ca by the way short easy concise memos on everything to do with the topics that we talk about it's like lego you can't mess it up and then the pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca website is brand new you can check that out anytime all built to educate you more on the topic which we enjoy covering here each week on the show okay Corey. As promised, uh, my friend, your email, I've been on LTD since May 2022. The reason I stopped working is chronic pain with my neck and shoulders. I had left shoulder replacement surgery in late November 2022. When it came time for physio for my shoulder, I chose the closest provider to my home and one that was approved by the LTD insurer. I'm now on my fourth case manager. She requested I apply for CPPD, which I did a few months ago. Now they're asking for a copy of an MRI report that my doctor referred me for that was done last year. The MRI covered both shoulders and my neck. They're also telling me they may want me to change to another physio they work with. Am I and uh, uh, I am and have always followed uh, what my doctor has requested of me throughout this process. He's also referred me for radio, 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 whatever it is, some sort of testing. I know tomorrow we'll fill you in on uh, radiocolopathy, I think it's called, with no appointment time frame as of yet. Should I be forwarding the MRI reports to them, the insurer? Uh, can they make me change to another physio that would be inconvenient for me? More hassles Corey doesn't need. So there you go. That, that's it, John. That's it. Uh, let alone trying to, you know, use these medical terms and words correctly, right? It's, it's uh, just a like lot me. for people. Uh. Um, yeah, you know, I think that I really don't like the idea that the insurance company is giving him such a hard time. Uh, it's clear that he and his doctors are doing everything that they can to investigate, treat, understand what's happening with his health issues. You know, he's had the surgery fairly recently. I mean, it's, it hasn't been even a year. And, you know, he's doing the physiotherapy. And I absolutely agree that he should be following his doctor's advice on where to go, how to treat, what to do, what's the course of treatment, and so on. And so, 
you know, the idea that the insurer wants him to go to one of their own treatment providers, you know, I get my back up on this because this is something that we see quite a bit where the insurance company will prefer their treatment provider because they can then direct what the treatment provider does by way of treatment, the time frame, frequency, how things get reported. Uh, and usually an insurer is only spending money on this kind of treatment if it means they're focused on actually getting you back to work. The ch- trouble is, though, John, that most policies m- allow the insurance company to direct this kind of treatment. It's under usually like a rehabilitation plan or section in right. the policy that says, if we think you need this, we will basically tie this to your entitlement to LTD. So unless you can show us that it's not medically necessary or it's going to harm your health, you are required to cooperate. And sometimes I struggle with what kind of advice do I give claimants like Corey to say, well, do you keep up your ongoing treatment with your own physiotherapy and add on what the insurer is asking you to do? Or do you stop your own therapy and just focus on the one physiotherapist? You know, I've actually had people tell me, John, that the insurance company will make them stop with their own treatment provider in the time that they provide this kind of rehab plan. So you're now breaking the progress and the trust perhaps that you have with your own provider and having to start that all up with someone entirely new. And so I think it's fair in situations like this to you know, get that support from your doctor, push back a little bit on the adjuster to say, I am making progress. You know, What is it exactly that you guys want me to do with this new provider? I'd prefer to stay with my own provider. Can we work something out? That would be my starting point on that conversation and trying to resist the insurer's efforts in, you know, changing the path, right? Because if progress is being made, or maybe it's not even being made, but it doesn't really matter, you're actually trusting the therapist that you're seeing and your doctor who's recommended this treatment. That's better than trying to fit yourself into a plan that the insurance company wants to put you through because they actually just want to end your claim, right, and cut you off. So, it's tough. It's tough because you don't want to compromise your health, but you recognize that the disability policy ties their requirements to your ongoing entitlement to LTD. What I have less trouble with, John, is the idea of should he forward the MRI report? Absolutely forward the MRI report. There's no reason why you should be withholding information from the insurance company whatsoever. The more information the insurance company has, the better. If your profile is not straightforward or they're, I don't know, even if it is straightforward, regardless, even if there's little bits of it that, you know, your doctor's like, well, you know, I don't know if they need this. uh, My vote is always provided all because you never know where it might progress, how things might develop. You know, I've had clients who have developed, you know, some mental health conditions, for example, when they're struggling with their physical health, not, not uncommon. And they will go to their family doctor and talk to the family doctor about their uh, mental health and how they're struggling. And they won't necessarily provide that information to the insurance company. And I I say, you know, no, you absolutely should. Because that underlying profile of the mental health conditions is, first of all, part of the whole claim for disability. And it provides some context to the insurer that this is something that you're really struggling with. It's important for them to know because they are looking at your ability to work and lining that up with only your physical health issues if that's the only information that they have. So the more information the insurer has, the better. I think that way as well, it allows your doctor then to provide 
more helpful medical information when it comes time to providing those updates that the insurance company is inevitably going to need about making decisions about your ongoing entitlement to LTD. So if there are other elements of health or testing that has been done, share all of that with the disability insurer so they get a complete picture. The last thing I'll say on this, John, is that there's actually a really helpful memo on this on the LTDFAQ.ca uh-huh. that we talked about at the top of the show. Uh, there's actually two that come to mind, one that deals with doctor's reports, one that deals with um, rehabilitation plans. And so, again, I really encourage people, including Corey, that if you're having trouble navigating this and you want to get a little bit more info than what we've already talked about on our show, please don't hesitate to access these other resources. And really, at the end of the day, if you want to have another chat um, with myself or someone on my team, don't hesitate. These consultations are absolutely free, and we're happy to talk to anyone at any phase of their disability. Corey, appreciate the reach out and the email as well. Thanks for uh, sending that along. Follow up with that phone call, as you're always directed to do. You as well, if you're listening on the the show today, one 821 5900 More questions are coming up. We'll take a short break and get back with our last uh, few minutes of the Disability Law Show. Hang in there. All right, we're back. Disability Law Show. If you've been hanging in for the entire hour, appreciate that and appreciate even more if you've sent along some uh, some emails or what we refer to as content in the uh, the business. You can always send those along to Tamar anytime. It's help at disabilityrights.ca. You want to leapfrog that, go right for the phone call. That's available to you as well. Toll free, one 821 5900 And you can always check out pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. Uh, Let's get into it. I got a question for you, Tamar. If, if a yes. person's now they're in hospital, they need uh, they know they need to go on disability. They've obviously had a chat with their medical team, so on and so forth. How do they go about making that application? Can their employer submit the necessary forms? Will they submit the necessary forms? What do you think? Yeah, so, so that's a really good question, John. The... Most of the policies that we talk about on the show are group disability policies. And so they are tied to individuals' employment. And I think a lot of people just assume, well, you know, surely once I let my employer know that I'm not working, that they're going to start the processes for me that are required or they'll let me know or they will do it for me. And I don't, that's not true, actually. Mm-hmm. A lot of employers don't actually know when to initiate the process. They might have one or two people working in like a HR, health and wellness kind of department. And the, the onus really does stand with the disability claimant to start that process with the disability uh, process, the, the, the application process rather, sorry. And so, I don't want individuals to think that they can rely on their employer to do it and do it in a timely way, right? Because we talked about that earlier in our show, that there are really strict timelines involved in terms of making that claim and making sure the insurance company knows that you're not working and not capable of working. But when you find yourself in a hospital, for example, there can be some exceptions, at least from the eyes of the court, right? The eyes of the court has said, if there's a reasonable explanation as to why you weren't able to do a timely Uh, application. And for example, if you were in an incapacitated state, for example, what if you're in a coma, God forbid, or in a temporary ICU unit, you know, I'm just trying to think of really extreme examples, but it could be just as simple as, you know, look, I have a broken leg and I stayed in hospital for a week. Um, There is not that same strict adherence to the timeframes to start the disability claim. But I don't want anyone to think that just because they're in hospital that the employer is going to do it. Um, it would be worth, at the very least, sending an email uh, or getting a family member to send an email to the employer and then asking, 
by the way, can you put us in touch with the, either the administrator or the insurer for disability benefits so that we can at least let them know that an application is coming. Uh, but the courts have given some forgiveness in situations like this. We call it relief from forfeiture, legal terms. Uh, but it's a relief that you would seek from the court to say, hey, you know, I did not have perfect compliance with the policy terms on notice uh, or submitting my application on time. Uh, will you forgive that compliance issue in favor of actually considering the disability claim on its merits? And uh, generally, if it's within a certain period of time and there's a reasonable, you know, I don't want to say excuse, but explanation, I suppose, for why there was delay, then you should be okay. But the bottom line is, is that if you can make timely notice, even if the application isn't in right away, uh, that will go a long way, I think, in resisting what insurers typically will do, which is to say, ah, you know what, you're a little bit late. Like, I'm thinking about, John, I have a client right now, I'm actually drafting her claim right now, where the insurance company said to her she was seven days late. Seven <gasps> days late. Wow. Yeah, it's just bonkers. And the employer admitted that they had provided her with the forms too late. And they said, oh, you know what, she reached out to us, but you, by the time we got it to where she was beyond the time frame, you know, can you please accept this as a reasonable explanation for the delay of her application? And they refused. And what they said to my client was, well, you should have known, and you should have known, and it is ultimately your responsibility to have done a timely application and let us know that, you know, you're going on disability or you've been on disability for some time. And her response to the insurer, which I think is a valid one, was, I actually didn't know when I did find out that I had to make this claim, I reached out to my employer and, you know, unfortunately, they didn't provide the, the documents on time. And so this is an interesting one, but a good one to start a legal claim on because I don't think the insurance company is on good footing. Seven days is not enough to prejudice a proper review of her disability claim. Um, you know, it's it's not, it's, yeah, I've, I've seen cases, John, where it's been months of delay. Not that I want to encourage our listeners to wait that long, uh, but you can see that it just, it was not reasonable for them to have denied her claim on that basis, especially when the employer was supportive and given all the facts that was presented. You know, she was waiting on medical testing and other things that was happening, John. So this is a good question and one that I think that we lose sight of sometimes when we just assume that people are making timely applications and I think that insurance companies have, unfortunately, they have adjusters who lose the humanity at times when they when they look at these kinds of claims, very robotic, um, very automatic, and you know they'll look at the dates and that's that, and they will if they can find a technical reason to deny the claim, they will, uh, and you know this is why we're here because when they do it incorrectly, this is why we champion rights for our clients on proper bases because it's just simply not going to hold hold water. And I suspect we're going to have a good compensation and good result for our client on that re for that reason alone because they acted poorly. Especially seven days. I mean, come on, chicken doesn't spoil that fast. I mean, it's like that's that that seems totally unreasonable to me. Is is that commonplace you found in this in the business or no? Well. Well, so now we're going to get into it because I no. think it had more to do with her underlying disability. So let's talk about it a little more. Yeah. She went off work with just diffuse but widespread body pain. Like things were hurting, didn't make sense. She was having some unusual bleeding issues. She was having some um, sleep pattern impacts, like a whole host of what we call nonspecific symptoms. And these symptoms were being investigated for a long time and uh, anemia, like just, just a whole host of things. And so... It took a long time for them to be uh, to a point where she actually saw the right specialists and was getting the right testing. 
uh, as we know, things are very, very delayed in the medical world right now across the country, unfortunately, and insurance companies are not very patient in having to allow people to work through that process. At the end of the day, she was diagnosed with lupus. Okay, so she was diagnosed with lupus, but it took eight or nine months for her to be diagnosed. And she was really, really sick for a long time. And so I think that they're looking at her profile. You know, she's she's in her late 40s. These policies typically pay until you turn 65. If they can find a very technical, silly reason to deny the claim on a seven days delay, then they will do that because someone like a lupus profile perhaps doesn't get the right health management to find themselves back to a work setting. And that is what it is at the bottom line is the money, right? John, if they don't have to release that LTD benefit month over month, and they don't have to have people like this on claim when they should, that is why they're getting the premium, then they will resist it on technical reasons. I think that's truly what's going on here, which is why when she called us, said I have no hesitation taking this on, um, you know, by all means. And I, I can assure you we're going to have a resolution within a number of months because their lawyer is going to see this the way that I see it, which is this is a valid disability claim, one that took time to resolve or at least diagnose, I suppose. Um, and then the application, the delay of the application is a no, never mind. Uh, and this should have been approved from the start. And with that, we are out of time. Fantastic work as always. You want to reach out to Tamar now, you can do so. And you can catch her on our TV show as well. Simply go to disabilityrights.ca, the media page. You'll find a, uh, a time and a place to catch that show on, on TV. But keep listening to the radio show and keep reaching out as well. one 821 5900 to reach Tamar and her team. Help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address we use. And that website you can go to, again, Pocket disabilitylawyer.ca. Thank you so much, and we'll catch you next time here on the Disability Law Show.